Stanford University. Uh, my name is Deborah Satz, and I direct the McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society that's sponsoring tonight's lecture along with the Department of Economics and the Woods Institute. This lecture is part of the center's series of lectures on the ethics of food and the environment. And you can check out more about this series and the center's other activities by going to our website, which is ethicsandsociety.stanford.edu. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, good. All right, good. Well, welcome. It gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Eleanor Ostrom. Lynn, as she likes to be known, is the Arthur Bentley Professor of Political Science at Indiana University and co-directs with her husband, Vincent Ostrom, the workshop in political theory and policy analysis. Am I doing that, making that noise? Uh, the workshop is justly celebrated for it's produced a wealth of theory, empirical studies, and experiments in political science, and especially in the field of, of collective action. She's also the 2009 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economic Science. And I'll say more about that and about her work in a moment. But first, let me give you a brief sketch, and I emphasize brief here, of her biography. In many ways, Lynn has been a pioneer and a pathbreaker. She received her PhD in political science from UCLA in 1965 at a time when very few women were entering the field. And I actually read somewhere that there were no women's bathrooms, that they had to devise a system for claiming the bathroom, the men's bathroom for women at different intervals um, because nobody had ever thought that there would be women um, who would need a bathroom around. Uh, in 1999, she became the first woman to receive the prestigious John Skite Prize in Political Science. And in 2005, she received the James Madison Award by the American Political Science Association. In 2008, she received the William Riker Prize in Political Science and also became the first woman to do so. In 2009, she received the Tisch Civic Engagement Research Prize from Jonathan Tisch College of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University. She's been a president of the American Political Science Association and a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And she's the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics. She's the author of too many books and articles for me to attempt to list. It would take all the time we have, and it would sound like a phone book of uh, uh, titles. But I'm going to single out three of her important books. First is Governing the Commons, The Evolution of Institutions for Collective Action, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 1990. And if you haven't read that book, go out and get it, because it is really um, uh, incredible. Uh, a second book, Understanding Institutional Diversity, was published by Princeton in 2005. And finally, the third book I'll mention is her book, her edited book with Charlotte Hess, Understanding Knowledge as a Commons, From Theory to Practice. Let me now say something about her work. She won the Nobel Prize for her analysis of economic governance, especially governance of the commons. In conventional economic analysis, 
The assumption is that individuals are self-interested and act to maximize their short-term material benefits in all circumstances. These models therefore permit, predict that when we are faced with certain social dilemmas, we'll act according to our self-interest and will not cooperate. An important case where a social dilemma arises is in the management of common resources such as pastures, fishery, and forests. Standard economic models predict that in the absence of clearly defined property rights, such common resources will be overexploited, with individuals acting without regard for the effect of their actions on the overall resource pool. Excessive fishing or grazing will result, and over time, the <coughs> stocks of the common resource will dwindle. This became known as the tragedy of the commons, and many of you may have read uh, Garrett Hardin's work by that title. Lynn's work shows us that what the commons presents to us is not a preordained tragedy, but an opportunity. She examines how people have sometimes managed to solve commons problems without having to resort to either privatization or the heavy hand of government. For example, groups of fishermen figure out how to limit their catch while farmers collaborate on irrigation problems. Lynn has closely investigated water associations in Los Angeles, police departments in Indiana, and irrigation systems in Nepal. In each of these cases, her work has explored how between the atomized individual and the state, there's a range of voluntary collective associations that over time can evolve efficient and equitable rules for the use of common resources. So here's a quote from the Nobel Prize Committee, which noted, quote, based on numerous studies of user-managed fish stocks, pastures, woods, lakes, and groundwater basins, Ostrom concludes that the outcomes are, more often than not, better than predicted by standard theories. She observes that resource users frequently develop sophisticated mechanisms for decision-making and rule enforcement to handle conflicts of interest and she characterizes the rules that promote successful outcomes. Indeed, what Lynn has showed us, this is me now, not the Nobel Committee, um, is that a lot of not very well-educated people who've never studied collective action problems seem to be able often, although not always, to develop institutional mechanisms to turn these problems around. An opportunity, but not a pre an opportunity, not a preordained tragedy. But opportunities depend on what we make of them. They can be lost or squandered. One article I saw about Lynn recently boldly declared that her ideas might just save the planet. The title of tonight's talk is Understanding Social Ecological Systems. Please join me in welcoming Lynn Ostrom. Well, thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a very exciting day. I've learned a lot, and uh, I've enjoyed uh, being here. Is this about the right, is this too loud or too, are we okay? Okay, good. Um, we're gonna talk about how do social and ecological systems interact, and when are they resilient? 
and this is a topic that we've been struggling with for some time. Um, because we go out and we study uh, forests or we study irrigation systems and they vary dramatically from one from, from another. And we find that social systems have immense variety. And yet in the literature, an awful lot of the recommendations uh, following Hardin and others are this is the way, this is the blueprint that will work. Um, and our argument is that each social ecological system is unique. We frequently don't get all the way to the uniqueness of it, but each human is unique in the same way that a social ecological system is. But there are some times that we can be dealing with certain common aspects, but there are many more of those common aspects than we have been using in our regular theory. So our argument is that uh, social ecological systems are structured by multiple variables that affect the patterns of outcomes over time and that we need to be better developing our diagnostic skills of which variables combined with which other variables make a big difference. So I'm going to go back to the conventional theory of collective action in social dilemmas. Um, that has been the dominant theory for the analysis of social dilemmas based on the uh, work of Mansur Olson and Garrett Hardin and many, many colleagues around the world. And the, the assumption was we started with the individual and they all maximize short-term material benefits to self everywhere. And then if they're presented with a resource dilemma uh, where free writing is the... Uh, or over-harvesting is the dominant strategy because if I contribute and nobody else contributes, I'm hurt. But if everybody else contributes and I can free ride, um, then I'm in good shape. And so the assumption is that everyone would free ride and then you would never get collective benefits. So basically the, uh, the model that was used is a presumption um, that everyone maximizing short-term benefits leads automatically to suboptimal outcomes due to no cooperation. And that is across a di wide diversity of settings. Now, if you use that uh, conventional theory and you want to say, well, how do we get out of it? Well, that is where we have to impose the rules from the outside. Uh, so the participants wouldn't solve it. Uh, because that is the second level of dilemma if they have to solve it. Uh, so we have to have scholars, us, um, who then develop models and then policy analysts take our models and impose them and we get to optimality. Listen to that. So uh, we have the same assumption about individuals maximizing short-term benefits. Uh, external authorities design and impose optimal rules based on scholarship. Uh, and if you have the uh, optimal rules on individuals who maximize, we don't have to change this at all, then you can get to social optimal. And that has been a, a simplified view, but of a very dominant way of thinking. Okay, now, what we started in the 70s was an immense amount of empirical work of studies that people had done all over the world, and then we started doing an immense number of empirical studies in the field. And we do find support in some findings, in some places. You can't say that it, it's never supported. 
but the theory says it's impossible. Um, and uh, we find too many cases that it isn't uh, supported to say that the theory's right. It's more, it is possible, it's just that not everybody does it. Uh, and then the problem is if you predict never, then findings in any setting uh, challenge that theory. And the problem, however, is as you do empirical work on this, you find a very large number of factors that appear to be uh, affecting whether or not people succeed. And so I, I've tried, and many others have tried, okay, which one or which two factors really always control things like size of uh, community, heterogeneity. Well, we find uh, those just all over the place in terms of some big succeed, some small don't, some heterogeneous don't and other heterogeneous do. It's just these are not absolutes. So what we are trying to do is update uh, the conventional theory. And the first foundation for that uh, is to get at that micro theory of human behavior and move to a behavioral theory of choice, and we're drawing on Herbert Simon, but a lot of work in psychology and uh, um, behavioral economics. Um, and we can start off with an assumption that individuals want to do well, uh, but they have incomplete information. They're boundedly rational. They don't have the full information about how to really get there. Further, individuals can learn over time so you have individuals who interact in a setting and get better information over time and learn, and they're particularly sensitive to learning social rules. And some of the psychologists' work have looked at what is, where do people learn fastest and what are they most sensitive to, and learning the rules and norms of others uh, is something that people learn uh, super quick. And they then learn uh, they're sensitive to, in terms of what's going on. And they learn, potentially, norms and other regarding preferences, depending upon who else is involved in the structure of the situation. Um, so if you're in a situation and everybody else is an aggressive son of a gun, uh, you don't learn a norm that this is a group that you're all going to help one another. On the other hand, if you're in a group and everybody else is trusting and working and developing, you learn some of those possibilities of uh, trust and reciprocity and norms. So this theory is very frustrating for some people because it doesn't make a single prediction. And people love theory that says, oh, it's always x. It says it could be x, it could be x minus 10, it could be x minus 20, it could be halfway, it could be uh, negative. But it means <clears throat> that there is a working part of learning norm-using individuals that depend on context whether or not they will actually cooperate. And there was a time earlier where people would say they would reject mathematical theory and say, oh, context matters. And then you'd ask them, well, what do they mean? Well, uh, you never knew. They just said context matters. And we're really trying to structure a way that eventually we have a good knowledge about context and we can get a better sense. But again, we won't have a single variable, but this is trying to get, what do we mean by context? 
So one of the ways to think about it first is if we have learning and norm-adopting individuals, they find themselves inside micro-situations uh, and in the lab or in a lot of family situations or small groups. It's a micro-situation that has a pretty strong impact on them. They're also in a broader context, which may have an impact on the micro as well as on them. And given that, you can have levels of cooperation and outcomes that vary across action situations or games or the setting, whatever you want to call it. Um, but um, we, the individuals are embedded in um, micro and broader situations. So to explain cooperation, uh, we haven't found a single variable that always explains it. And um, what we do have is, this isn't a structural variable from the outside, we do have one variable that is extremely important. It's a five-letter variable, trust. Um, people do uh, tend to cooperate with others when they trust the others to be cooperators and reciprocators. And um, it's very simple to explain why. If you trust others that they're going to be cooperators, then you're not going to be a sucker. And one of the reasons that people are, uh, predict free writing is that they think that anyone in that situation doesn't want to be a sucker. And so they're going to hold out on everybody else because they don't want to be in the situation everybody else holds out and they're the only cooperator. So resulting cooperation when you have trust can increase joint benefits. So what we're arguing is that thus to predict and explain cooperation, you have to examine how the micro situation and broader context affects trust and reciprocity. Well, if we do that, then we can be thinking about the micro situation and this learning and norm ad adopting individuals. But if there's some trust that other participants are reciprocator, you move to a little higher level of cooperation. And if that occurs, net benefits go up and you have feedback. On the other hand, if they get in and the levels of trust of other participants or reciprocators starts going down, uh, the levels of cooperation goes down, um, and the net benefits go down, and it cycles back that way. So you can see situations where cooperation starts high and zoom down, and you can see where it's kind of starting low and zooms up or in between. And then the micro situation and the broader context affect that possibility, as well as the individual's norms and things of this sort. Okay, so testing game theory models in the experimental lab, and I won't go into great detail on this, what we've done is taken the game theory models of uh, earlier work, um, and if we put a hardened model in the lab and have seven people interacting um, making decisions, uh, and they don't know one another, it's anonymous, no way of knowing um, reputation, etc. They don't cooperate. So in that setting, uh, we can show massive uh, lack of cooperation. In fact, for those of you who know game theory, they do worse than NASH. NASH is predicted as a high level of non-cooperation, and they even do worse. On the other hand, give individuals a chance 
to cooperate, to communicate with one another face to face. And that is considered in game theory cheap talk because there's no external enforcer. I can promise, oh, let's all cooperate. I'll cooperate if you guys do. Well, there's nobody to enforce to make sure that I do. And that's why in game theory it's called cheap talk. Cheap talk is very effective, especially in, a, again, a small group interacting. And people would go from way below zero um, cooperation to quite high. Uh, again, from the field, I was seeing people monitoring and sanctioning each other. We did a game theoretical analysis, which predicts that they wouldn't. We put it in the lab, and they did. They did at quite a high level in the lab. And that's been replicated now by a number of other p people, and I'm going to advertise. We have an article accepted in Science, um, and um, we just read that somebody's written a perspectives article on it at the introduction, and something else by Bowles. And it should then be out in the next two, well, not two, because it, it needs a little editing, probably in the next month. So um, it, it, uh, Marco Jensen is the lead author, but it is an experimental uh, uh, work in a more complex environment. But we're finding there that sanctioning alone uh, is not sufficient. It takes communication with sanctioning so that there's some discussion about why you are uh, 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 sanctioning. And uh, with communication, sanctioning can be very effective. Without it, um, both net and gross benefits are way down. So now uh, we've been trying to put together a cumulative understanding. And I went over a huge literature of uh, looking at micro situations in the lab studied by a wide diversity of people in uh, public goods and CPRs and which micro-situational variables affect the likelihood of cooperation. And so we found a number of them that are positive in most places. High marginal per capita return. In other words, if you, if you cooperate, you can really get a higher level of return. It is positively uh, affecting cooperation levels. Communication uh, is one I've talked about in uh, study after study after study has shown that if communication is feasible uh, among the full set of participants, not among the subset, that's a different, um, cooperation is higher. If the reputations of uh, participants, not necessarily their, their name, but their history, that you know that X player cooperated in the last five times, uh, that makes a very positive impact. Um, longer time horizon. Now, in a lab, that is difficult. We were talking a little bit about this earlier today. Uh, but if you um, uh, have some experiments where it is a two, three hour, as opposed to 30 minutes, or you do it over a week, and there's some way that people have to come back, that's a hard one to do, but you can. Um, the, um, the longer time horizon uh, does uh, lead to a better return. Because uh, if you cooperate over many, many times, uh, the return can be quite a bit higher. Uh, the capacity to leave uh, or enter. So you're not very happy with what's going on. You leave it. You can go to another group. And that makes a big difference. Uh, 
security that contributions uh, must be adequate. This is done in labs. It's not very replicable in the field, but it is that you have a sense that um, unless you all get to at least a minimum contribution, you won't be, uh, you won't have to pay. There's a minimum level. On the other hand, then we have some micro situations that have mixed effect. Size of group. Um, in public good experiments, subjects are more likely to contribute in big groups and not so in CPRs. Um, information made available about average contributions. Again, in public good experiments, cooperation levels shift, in that case, downward over time when uh, that information is given. In CPRs, it tends to lead to a shift up. And it appears that people are really worried that they're not going to get any income because it's going down, down. So it goes down, down, and then up. Uh, sanctioning capabilities. Um, and some of the experiments on that have shown that net benefits are negative, And that's part of the, what we do in the new paper. And heterogeneity of participants um, depends very much on the way that's done. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. So even at a micro level now, we have a wide diversity of factors that if we take that little uh, inner net of potentially core relationships, that uh, these have, in some cases, um, uh, we, we have pretty good knowledge about it, but if you then uh, mix them, um, so you have, com uh, you have communication, which is usually positive, um, but uh, we have group size very big in a CPR, and that's a problem. Uh, you don't have one that always, you know, the prediction is contra. Uh, and thus we find frequently that we don't have some simple or that so much heterogeneity and so much communication adds up. You don't have a nice little multiple regression equation that you can use. And so we've got to understand that it's a combination of these that affect the probability. And then when you try to get to a broader environment, um, this is where we run into much more difficult um, because the broader context that uh, people find themselves in affects the micro and affects uh, what, uh, they, uh, what can go on. And we have this big problem, how can we integrate these two levels? And I opposed in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2007, I guess, a diagnostic framework of social ecological systems. Uh, and we've been working on this quite a bit. And we start off with the notion of a focal system, which could be a lake, a forest, an irrigation system, some way of some system that we're interested in studying. And there are four internal and two external subsystems. So we can be thinking broadly of the resource system, the fishery or whatever, the resource units, the type of, uh, as we all know, uh, depending on the type of fish, there are quite different dynamics. So uh, it's not only the broad system, but the units. You have governance systems, which are pretty complex things. 
users, well, those affect and are affected by, over time, an action situation, uh, which is like a game, but it's a more general way of thinking about it, that generates interactions and outcomes. And at that level, that's quite broad, uh, we can think of these embedded in a social, economic, and political setting, down, uh, coming down and going up, affecting it, similarly with a related ecosystem. So that gives us at least the first cut, and um, we're going to get more complex than that, but um, we can at least start there. So if we think of it at the most simplest level, we can be thinking about a micro setting embedded in a resource system, resource units, governance, etc., so that these relationships are themselves affected by all of this. But let's go on. So how does this diagnostic framework help us understand complex social ecological systems? And what we've been struggling with is the slow identification of variables at a broader context, like we've been doing at the micro, that may affect interactions and outcomes. And uh, this is then from a huge literature of people who have done field studies that we've been coding and looking at it, and then our own field studies in irrigation and forestry and metropolitan urban. So we need to then unpack the variables within that system. Uh, and I'm going to have us look at the second tier, but I warn you, take a breath. <laughs> so inside a resource system are at least nine broad variables of what sector, how clear are the boundaries, um, what is the um, uh, human constructed facilities, a dam and things of this sort for irrigation, what are equilibrium properties, predictability, location, um, that gives you at least a beginning of knowing something about it. Uh, for users, how many of them are using a, a fishery, uh, hunting or whatever, what are their socioeconomic attributes, their history of use, their location, where are they, is there leadership, entrepreneurship, is there, are there norms, social capital? Do they not know much about this, et cetera? Now, you'll see some of these have stars around them. And I, we're going to talk briefly about um, uh, looking at self-organization. And I've developed a theory that I don't think I'll be able to go into very much now that is a mathematical theory that predicts uh, self-organization. And what we've been trying to do is it doesn't have variables that are too easy to measure. I'll show you that. And so we've got to go out to these and try to figure out how these impact the benefits and costs that people see about self-organization. And for those of you who are interested, uh, there's a, a simplified version uh, of the um, whole PNS original framework in science last summer, in July of, of 2009. Okay. Now, some people just, I, I warned you to, because I've had people just go, ah, um, uh, just, oh, uh, overreact, or just negative. And I understand it, but if you were to lay out right now all the subsystems of the human system and all the subparts of little links and it, it would look like that. Um, 
you look at a, a, a um, medical textbook and <laughs> you or any uh, biology, it's just got uh, systems within systems within systems. So I'm drawing heavily on Simon, Axelrod, Holland, and Vincent Ostrom that have taught us that we have to um, understand and diagnose complexity, not just reject it. So we can think of this as a very general, multidisciplinary language that helps unite the work of social and ecological scholars. At least these are some of the language and key concepts we all need to know. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're all relevant for every problem. So we need to know them and then know which of them are relevant as we do analysis of different problems. So these are nested. Uh, hold on uh, is the uh, thing that, I uh, can't think of his name right now, uh, named for systems within systems within systems. Anyway, uh, let's ask when will the users of a common pool resource self-organize? And of course, Harden said never. And so many of the policies are based on that. But when will they self-organize? Let's look at that. And um, I'll briefly do a very brief overview. If we posit that each user of a resource system compares the expected benefits of existing operational rules, which may mean open access, but it may mean whatever they've worked out um, at a particular time, with their expected benefits of a new set. So there's some comparison of what benefits might I get from the future versus what benefits might I get from the current. Each user must ask whether his or her incentive to change is positive, and it's only positive if the benefits are greater. We can then think of uh, D, the incentive to change, uh, being uh, if uh, benefits of uh, new rules are greater than the benefits of the old rules, if, if D is negative for everyone, no change at CC. Uh, but then, if D is positive for some, we've got to ask what are the costs that might be involved. And there are three very difficult to measure costs. One is the upfront costs of time and effort spent in devising and agreeing on rules. And we can kind of get the number of hours and how all it's taken. But some people enjoy going to committee meetings and arguing. <laughs> Uh, other people really hate it. So getting a measure of that cost is challenging. I mean, analytically, it's there. <coughs> um, then there are the short-term costs of implementing new rules. No matter what you do, you're going to have to change behavior, and you may have to not harvest as much and things of this sort. And there are the long-term costs of monitoring and maintaining over a system. And then this is what we don't have we can use in a market setting benefits and costs and do analysis and get good data. But these benefits and costs are analytically adequate, but they don't give us something we can go out and measure this problem. So if we sum off our users, um, if, unless, uh, the, if the costs are higher, uh, there's no change. If a change will occur for at least one coalition that does see the benefits higher than the costs, um, so if all or a winning coalition agree, they will adopt new rules. But again, that depends upon their estimate of a particular proposal. 
not on some objective knowledge that all the rest of us have. So um, the, it, one of the problems we also have is there's some variance in the estimate, and the ruling elite think some set of rules are better than others, you're going to tend to find some rules that benefit that ruling elite. But the, the problem that we have is, the theory is, I've posed this several times, I've never had anyone challenge the theory, um, um, but the theory isn't easily measured because we can't get inside the head. So then we go back to linking the theory to the framework and we can then begin to study multiple cases where variables like those that were starred, size of group, um, size of the resource system, heterogeneity, et cetera, affect. And I'm going to go through and talk about three second-tier resource system variables, one resource unit, um, five um, user variables, uh, uh, et cetera. As these are the potentially relevant variables that frequently are shown to be related, but again, we still don't have, you need X amount of size and Y amount of um, uh, mobility, uh, et cetera. It, it's the problem that these work together. So if we now go back to, I'm going to be looking at uh, uh, these starred items, um, et cetera. So let me talk about size of the resource system. If it is sufficiently small, given the communication and transportation technologies in use, and if those are, if you can get up to a high hill and look out, or you can use GPS or, or remote sensing or things of this sort, uh, you can actually now work with a much bigger system than was earlier. Um, but they've got to have some knowledge about the system. Uh, or how do, you, how do you manage it? How do you begin to think of the, the benefits are? The productivity of the system. Um, if it's not already been exhausted, or it's so abundant, you know, if it's really abundant, no, why organize? Uh, if it's already collapsed, why organize? So it is that it is a bit threatened, but not destroyed. Another thing is predictability. Uh, it turns out some uh, resource systems have the characteristic of mathematical chaos. Um, Jim Wilson has written quite a bit on this. And when the system really is uh, chaotic in the mathematical sense, um, uh, uh, fishers, he's particularly talking about fishery systems, can't tell what difference they do makes on the system because the system isn't, you know, that they can't say, okay, we're going to do this and we should see that happening in the system because the nature of the system is such that it's not predictable. Uh, whether the units are mobile or not, uh, if they're mobile, uh, trees are a lot easier to manage uh, than water or fish. Um, and um, uh, we need to understand that. The number of, of users, uh, we have a nonlinear relationship between the number of users and self-organization. Uh, small, really small groups are frequently able to talk well with one another, but they don't have enough people to do the work. And really big groups frequently have 
transaction costs that are high. So um, it is then the relationship of the task, and that relates very much to the size of the resource system they're trying to manage. So in a small, if they are a medium-sized group and they've got a small forest, they're not in trouble. But if they're trying to manage a big forest, and there are only 25 to 50 of them, that's a problem. Whether there's leadership or entrepreneurship, um, are there people with real skills to say, hey, folks, let's get together, let's start meeting, let's having some discussions and all the rest. Um, and without that, uh, people may never get together in the first place. Um, what kind of norms and social capital do they have? Um, if they have already shared norms because they've lived in the same area for a long time, they've already done a variety of things, that's a lot easier than if it's a bunch of strangers who are now put together for some reason and they've got to figure out how to get started on it. What's the knowledge they have about that system? And again, uh, if they've worked on it, they've fished in it for a very long time, they've got a much better idea of where there are good fishing sites and things of this sort than if they haven't. Uh, how important is a resource? People talk, call this one dependency. If they're dependent on the resource for their livelihood, they're much more likely to pay attention. And the collective choice rules, do they have some autonomy to actually make a change? Well, that's a big group. It's 10. Uh, we've done a lot of studies. We don't have a nice mathematical way that you need um, a three-quarter size and one-fourth this, etc. But we've done tabular work showing that systems that don't have a lot of these characteristics don't have as much chance of uh, mobilizing uh, as ones that are characterized by a lot of them. And so it's, it's a much more qualitative analysis that we're able to do, but we are able to see it in the field. And a lot of people have, have argued that these are important, but they've usually argued, my variable's the most important, rather than looking at a set of them. So part of what we're getting at is that it depends on the, how the combination affects the level of trust in a variety of micro settings that people are in. So we've not had a lot of studies that have tried to look at both aspects of context until recently. So Henrich and all have been looking at the 15 small communities and looking at micro settings in creating experiments in them. And uh, there's, you know, these studies aren't perfect, but they really have some very interesting results that um, behavior is somewhat similar across all 15. So the experimental findings that we have from university experiments haven't been negated. On the other hand, there's attributes of the social system that people are in that affects how much cooperation or how much defection there is. Um, we've been doing work, uh, uh, Michael Jansen and Karnanis uh, and Bousquet have been taking and doing field studies where people do manage forests or irrigation and looking at those in the field. Uh, and yesterday I talked uh, at the Moore Foundation about three fishing communities that Javier Pilcerto and I have studied where we have very long-term data about the fishing situation and about all of the characteristics. So how do they fit? 
So our next research problem is looking at that fit. That is the big question. And we need over time research in multiple sites to assess it. And slowly but surely, we're getting more and more of that. Uh, so we're looking at combinations and how they fit. And we've been focusing on small to medium scale CPRs. And some folks have raised question of, should we do that? At least what we've tried in the, in the short run is to control some of the size and variation of the resource systems so we were not just looking at giant ones at the same time to look at this. Uh, and we've identified core attributes of forestry, water, et cetera. Um, and I'm going to show you very briefly some of the findings from our recent forestry research. So again, it's quite interesting. And we have this very surprising finding. And we now have about six or seven articles that have looked at a variety of factors and find that when the users of a forest monitor each other's use, it becomes an important variable, even with all sorts of others. But it becomes one of them. And here, you can then do uh, regression uh, on a variety of things and have it in a multiple regression. And it becomes a significant variable affecting quality of forest. Um, uh, the early studies were uh, in world development by Gibson and all. Uh, Tanya Hayes and I did one. Um, uh, in a PNAS article in, nine, in 2006, um, myself and uh, Harini Najendra found that user monitoring was so strongly associated with better forest conditions. Recently, several articles in JPAM and uh, Ecological Economics and PNAS have been finding it. So this is getting to be very strong. The, um, uh, we have a, a study of 100 forests in 14 countries that we have collected through the International Forestry Resources and Institutions Program. And the database is very much the SES framework, and it have been done over time. Uh, so most of the variables in it are uh, contained. And uh, Coleman and Steed found that when local user groups have the right to harvest from a forest, they can actually harvest. Um, uh, the forest may actually improve over time, because those who have long-term rights tend to monitor one another, because there's some future that they can see. This is having affecting that long-term view. Um, uh, Ashwini Chatre and uh, uh, Rune Agarwal in uh, a PNAS article this fall, just a few months ago, uh, looked at 80 forests and 10 tropical. They focused on tropical only. And looking at the potential trade-offs and synergies between level of carbon and livelihoods. And, and people have thought that this is, you know, if you try to get the carbon, you can't have livelihoods. If you get livelihoods, you can't have carbon. Well, one, they're finding mostly synergy rather than trade-off, which is a very important finding. Again, and when the community monitors, because again, they've got some long-term interest because there is food and other things they're getting out of the forest, forest conditions improve. So one of the panaceas that people frequently propose is protected areas, keep the people out. And yet, our findings are not consistent with that.
So we're now doing uh, a bunch of future work uh, with colleagues all over Europe trying to develop this framework still further. Uh, there'll be several more publications coming along as you know, we working on the definitions, getting it uh, much clearer over time. But this is not a fast job. Um, and we're also developing dynamic models of how some of these factors may be affecting one another so that we can be testing those over time um, and trying to test different propositions in regard to different social ecological systems at diverse scales. So there's a lot of work that we have in the future. Your ideas and suggestions are welcome. Um, and um, we would be glad to interest, I would be glad to answer questions, et cetera. so much for this. Uh, there is so much that you've talked about which is consistent with my experience running a company, how anything is achievable with trust and anything is an obstacle without it. Uh, in the introduction, it was mentioned that you did uh, work studying uh, cooperation in uh, various places around the world of uh, farmers and I don't remember exactly what, but it made me think that of the work that Steve Lansing at the Santa Fe Institute is doing in Bali, and yeah. I was wondering if you've had any collaboration or interaction with him. Oh yeah, uh, he's. Uh, this is a fascinating study because his first he went out uh, to Bali uh, with a World Bank project, and they were uh, uh, going to change them. They they thought that. The, the rules uh, are embedded in religious practices and temples and things of this sort, and uh, get rid of it. And he showed using a computer simulation that the rules um, uh, were pretty uh, well, while they're not the sort of thing we all think about, um, they were a way of solving two problems. One, um, trying to get um, the weather patterns uh, in a good one, and, and then he's found that bugs um, um, can um, <coughs> uh, grow in moist um, uh, if you let the rain uh, if you let the rain uh, sorry rain <laughs> rice fields stay you have all sorts of problems of uh, uh, insects that eat the rice of their neighbors and the system they had developed. Uh, meant that they were clearing these so that you didn't have them all at the same time and reduce the uh, problem of, of bugs dramatically. So what's important about what Lansing was doing is he looked at very complex systems, and this is a highly tiered system, um, big, uh, but each of them had their individual way of operating and there were rules for the system as a whole. And uh, the development agencies all wanted to get rid of it. And when they had, they did get rid of it for a while, and the problem of, uh, of bugs, and uh, then if you fly over Bali, 
He has some pictures of the amount of uh, soil going out at the bottom. Just tremendous. Very good work. Thank you. Hi. Um, so uh, you talked a lot about the field experiments you did, the, the lab work that you did with individuals. Um, and it seems like a beautifully complex and fantastically difficult problem to sort of wrap your brain around. Um, and as you said, mathematics cannot easily do it. So, as you know, Robert Axelrod, when confronted with the same problem, said, well, how about agent-based computational modeling? And a lot of other social scientists are doing the same thing today. Well, my co-author is, I've, I've published several articles with Marco Denson using it. Oh, so, so I was just, I was just wondering how much you're working with agent-based computational models, and if you think that's a, if you're not doing it enough now, if you think that's a good place for researchers to look in the future, or if you think computational power and the algorithms still need to improve in order to be able to get to the point where we can model the systems you're discussing in, in this way. Yeah, I think it's one. I'll advertise a little book uh, that Marco uh, Jensen and Amy Poteet and myself have written called Working Together. And um, uh, Princeton, it'll be out in two or three weeks. And what uh, the working together was both looking at collective action in the commons, but also multiple methods and practice. And so what we're doing is taking this broad theory that we've been really working on, and how did we learn from case studies? How did we learn from meta-analysis? How did we learn from large N? How did we learn from the lab? How do we learn from game theory? How do we learn from agent-based modeling? Um, and our argument is every one of them has threats. Every one of them can contribute, and we need not, uh, part of our research team should be working with people who really know how to do some of this, and we can begin to add it up. Uh, so I don't tell my graduate students, go learn 10 methods. I say, go learn one method really well, really well. Then get to know a second or a third pretty well and work with colleagues that know it well. And then don't reject people who are doing different work. And agent-based modeling is very a very exciting method for complex systems because you can then uh, have a number of initial conditions, run it 500 times or 1,000, and see, you know, does, the, it, does it end up with a distribution like this or like this? And how do you ever get to a system that looks like this as opposed to that? Or even, just, or even find things that you completely couldn't have expected would have been there. Yes. As has happened. Well, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, ABMs. <laughs> I hope you don't mind a, a rather more narrow question. Uh, I realize I must be missing something when you dropped your steel curtain between yourself and uh, uh, Gerd Harden. Oh. It seems to me that your theory is completely compatible with Harden's. Well, I showed him to be correct. If we can't communicate, I did just... Okay. That was, that was, my, that was essentially my question because it no. seems he made clear that a condition of his conclusion was that no one communicates in any way other than by their actions on the commons. But he didn't really say it that way. He didn't say it quite that way, no. you're right. No, okay. he said they were trapped. <laughs> and a bunch of pastoralists using the same commons, how are they trapped? Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, I trapped them. <laughs> I, in, in, in the when they couldn't communicate and they, could, they didn't know who they were playing with, etc., I did trap them, and he's right. But 
a very large proportion of the settings out there, uh, people are not. Uh, they know who else is around and communicate with them, et cetera. Right. Essentially, what you're saying, I think completely correctly, is that his model really doesn't apply to many real-world situations. Yeah. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you very much for the important work you've done, laying a lot of groundwork for uh, complicated situations, and more importantly... And for all the young people here. Yeah. <laughs> Go forward, test it, challenge it, develop it. What I wanted to ask you is if people often ask you uh, what are the implications of your research for policy and how you feel uh, answering those questions, and then maybe if you don't mind, uh, what do you think about carbon policy? About what? Carbon policy. Carbon? Oh, uh, the global change problems. Um, or reduction of carbon. Yeah, I mean the global carbon okay, uh, policy. Okay, <laughs> um, the, um, I, uh, I'm very comfortable with our posing policies where we say, look, here are some of the factors you really have to find out before you come up with a set policy. I do reject the notion that we should have a uniform policy for all the uh, fisheries on an entire coast, the same policy everywhere. Uh, there's too much variation uh, in most coastal systems. And in the EU, they were trying to do, uh, for the entire Baltic and Mediterranean, the same policies and, and not letting people choose rules, etc. Uh, I'm opposed to those. <clears throat> On the other hand, I think we need to be getting an understanding of why some policies work better than others in this environment, and maybe not in this one. And we can be doing ever better uh, especially if we work with participants in ways that we're enabling and encouraging them to test, try out, things of this sort. Um, global change, um, I have a pretty radical view of it. I think I'll just say it's a polycentric view, and maybe if there's a lot more interest later, we can turn to it. But uh, we had a very good discussion of it earlier, and I am a little radical, so. Can you be more specific? <laughs> Well, I'm arguing that our conceptual model of it as only uh, each individual or firm has one externality and only one, and that's global, is incorrect. That uh, the externalities from a lot of what we do are potentially at multiple scales. Like the, the individual who, who becomes a biker gets better health. Uh, that's a positive externality of the individual. Now, that's big, the global small. Um, but if we can get households that uh, reduce, um, uh, increase uh, insulation, there's just a whole array of things uh, at community and larger. And we need to be encouraging that. I'm not opposed to, to global efforts to reduce carbon use, but I am opposed to our sitting around and just twiddling thumbs uh, without doing something. Thank you very much. Um, thanks a lot. I really appreciated your emphasis on uh, bottom-up self-organizing solutions and polycentrism. Um, I, uh, when you were listing the various things that you found uh, worked well for cooperation, uh, you listed a couple things that sounded uh, like you were actually uh, borrowing a page from uh, the market types again 
And I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is uh, you said uh, you were more likely to get cooperation if you had a long-term uh, property right in harvesting. And the other was the security mechanism that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, see, I'm not anti-market. Uh, for pure private goods that have very few externalities, uh, market mechanisms are the, to my mind, the best mechanis institutional mechanism we can use. So, but a lot of what we're dealing with uh, have a huge variety of externalities, and simple market mechanisms do not enable us to cope with those externalities. Thank you. So, um, you know, I, um, I graded economic theory as an undergraduate, so uh, I know how to <laughs> look at the kissing curves and uh, how to analyze it, but for that's private goods with very few externalities. So let's not reject market theory. It's recognized that it's a theory that's applicable and strong for a particular set of conditions. So I wondered if you could comment on a situation that I have some personal involvement with. Um, I volunteer in my spare time with a, a small NGO that, um, that does human rights monitoring and support in Chiapas, Mexico, mm. uh, around the area of the La Condona, um, the La Condon jungle. And as you may know, that um, is a, a lot of that is a, a reserve that was uh, made by the government in Mexico in the early 70s. Um, and what's happening now is that there are local populations around and, and in this reserve in forest land and some cleared forest um, who've been living there for a long time who are being evicted. Um, uh, and the story that by the government and the story in some ways, sometimes indirectly uh, by paramilitaries who are trying to it's a complicated situation, but they're, they're in league with the government trying to sort of privatize the land and, and destroy the ajito system of, of collective ownership. But the argument that the government makes is that um, the, for the forest to be preserved and for it to be well used, um, these mostly indigenous people need to be evicted um, because otherwise they will destroy it. And that the best way to preserve it is for the Mexican government to um, ensure this and to engage in contracts with large multinationals that will come down and responsibly use the resources. Um, so this is, doesn't have, this idea doesn't have a great history in Mexico and I just wondered if you could comment on that. If you look at the work of Bray uh, at Florida State who studied this rather extensively, right. he has shown that government forests that have evicted people have not been able to sustain themselves over time. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the work uh, in Oaxaca and up in the mountains uh, of the Usachi people, uh, there are some incredibly ingenious systems they've developed. Uh, so ingenious that they are uh, getting enough income uh, that they've been paving roads, they've been building schools, they're sending their kids, uh, almost all the kids in the villages are through high school, they're getting kids into the college and into master's degree. So they're, uh, they're able to manage their forests. Uh, they're growing orchids with a very advanced way of doing so. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's possible for the indigenous people to do really incredible work. Well, right on, and I, um, I just, I'm sure you get a, this a lot, but um, you know, I think many of us who are in this situation 
are hoping that your newfound prestige through the Nobel Prize will help to influence policy so that we don't get things like, you know, the destruction of the EO system through NAFTA, which was, uh, you know, the U.S. had a big role in. So, yeah, thanks. no, it is tragic because we presumed if they were indigenous and didn't have a college education, they didn't have knowledge. And we found many, many times that their knowledge was, well, when we go to um, um, uh, Bali, uh, Steve Lansing is showing it, and the work that's been done by uh, various researchers at UNAM as well as in Florida, in your own work, uh, is very important. Um, my name is Georgia. Um, my question is, uh, when you do your socio-ecological system, have you paid any attention to the different uh, group of peoples, like uh, people from different uh, countries, developed country, developing country, and uh, between the different uh, race, uh, like Asia, like America, uh, or different like uh, female and democratic different, uh, and also the social system, like uh, hierarchical system and the democratic system, what's the different, and uh, uh, do you have a comp Comparison uh, between the system. Well, we've looked at, at uh, Nepal irrigation uh, and have a lot of papers on it and a, a database of over 250. But I wouldn't want to say that the only country in the world where you can have self-organized uh, irrigation is Nepal. Um, uh, but um, uh, one of my doctoral students just uh, finished several years ago a comparative study in the Philippines of some of the systems that had been developed locally and then looking at the uh, uh, National Irrigation Agency and some of their top-down. He had a database of 2,000 systems. So this is a very serious piece of statistical analysis and found that a lot of the self-organized way outperformed the national systems. So we've looked around the world and yes, culture makes a difference, and I am disturbed because in some cases, women are, don't have full rights. Uh, but um, I am, uh, when, <clears throat> when we've had pardon me, government systems that come in and pay most attention to those issues and don't pay any attention to how to enhance the trust and other things of, of those involved, uh, sometimes it makes it worse. Mm, for the like uh, insects, social insects and honeybees uh, and all this social insect system, a hierarchical system, have you found any yes. democratic system? Yeah, we have found some. Level, yeah, we uh, have found some elite systems level. where the elite are doing very well. Thank you, uh, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, they're not sharing uh, very much, and so. It's, again, I'm not saying all small communities are beautiful and do well, no. Hi, thanks very much, Lynn. And I'm glad you said that to him because that's right where I was going. Um, that's Steve Schneider from Stanford. Uh, yes, of course, I agree with you totally about looking at uh, pluralistic and, and polycentric uh, situations. You want to be as flexible as you can. You want to learn what you can. And I also completely agree with the trust issue. The two areas that I have, which brings us back to how do we apply that to certain scale problems, is uh, comes from two problems. One is the trust busters, and I don't mean Terry, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. 
I mean, those people who deliberately get in there and do whatever they can through very, very well-financed advertising budgets and other things to destroy trust, just in order to prevent exactly the kind of model you're talking about being used. So that's one problem, which may require some more top-down. And the second question is, as the scale of our impacts grows, as you know, the planetary scale, you start getting into nonlinear regimes where the trust which is built out of success, trust often comes from the fact when you do shared activity, you have success. That's a really good way to build that trust. But what if the situation gets disturbed to where the empirical experience no longer applies to the future problem? And therefore, we don't have too much choice but to also take a look at the elites who build models of top-down that take us outside of the institutional experience that we've had empirically locally. So how do we put those two together? And obviously, I'm thinking of climate change. Yeah, yes. And so we can't just have a naive, I, when I am pushing local, I'm not pushing it as the solution. I'm pushing the fact that it would be just stupid to sit around twiddling thumbs and not do anything, and we can do a lot more than our theory has right now. So it's trying, okay, let's get active and challenge, and, and indeed we can keep pushing people at, a, at an international level, but they've been so inactive that I'm pretty depressed. And uh, so uh, in that area, I'm just trying to get us started. Um, no, um, uh, the uh, problems of very large scale uh, out of our prior experience are major problems. Uh, and, but on the other hand, uh, some very large corporations are extremely large and global. And some of them have worked out ways of building trust and working together uh, uh, from all over the world. Uh, and, um, uh, but it is, again, it doesn't work when it is just top down. Uh, if all they are doing is being commanded, and that's where Ollie Williamson's work is so important, uh, showing the potential ways of people organizing inside firms. Hi, I've been looking a lot at um, Thank you, Steve. agricultural experiments, uh, not only in Silicon Valley, but in Sonoma County where I live. And one of the things that's striking is how much land tenureship is, has land so locked up, it's very hard to do experiments with it. And so I keep find myself thinking about, are we really at the point where we have to re rethink the way we codify private property? Um, well, we should be we should be rethinking all forms of ownership, property, et cetera, and not have the sense that we have found the answer in the past and then we always apply it. Um, so there are instances where private property of land makes eminent good sense, but not everywhere. Uh, so it's, I don't want us to give up on the market working. There are places it does. So let's not reject something that works. <laughs> and similarly, there are places where private land holding works. Um, and let's not reject it where it does, but there are other places there are problems. And that's the sort of thing we need to be thinking about. So I had to come up and ask a question. I have to say one thing about these mics. I've noticed over and over again that women don't come up to the mic. It's just an interesting. I was uh, going to ask you about that. <laughs> just, uh, I don't know what it is. Anyway, so I thought I would at least 
break the uh, barrier here. So I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, just re-ask you a question that came up in our discussion earlier, which is, and it touches on things that people have been asking about, the place of inequality in thinking about enabling or inhibiting cooperation, mm -hmm. and whether there are any um, robust findings about inequality across different contexts playing an inhibiting role in allowing cooperation. Yeah. Here is one of those that the huge debates, and there are people who it will always improve or always deteriorate. But when you have some leaders who have more at stake, uh, and they would be benefited uh, if you cooperated. Um, but it isn't just that they can steal it, that if they get in and get it going, frequently you can have a very, very successful system. You can also have sustained systems over time, over a long time, with inequality uh, among participants, but it may not be uh, as cooperative. There may be an awful lot more of coercion. So uh, it, um, it isn't uh, always bad, uh, and, it, and, it, um, and equality is not always good, because uh, if you're going to take on a leadership role and you don't get at least a little more prestige and a few, uh, it's a lot of work. And uh, uh, so uh, having some forms of inequality does make very good sense. And I'm, well, what, can we make the two people walking down our last two? Yeah. <laughs> my, my legs oh, are getting weak. <laughs> uh, do you have any story on China, modern day China, as contrast to the early day California or early day America? Yes, uh, I'm working uh, about 10 or 12 of our, uh, our books have been translated into Chinese. So there's a very, very active community in China, very interested in our work and working with us. And one of the things in modern China that's extremely interesting is what's called a housing association. And uh, Chen Yohan and Mao Shalong are doing some very major work. Uh, housing, we don't even have an image of systems uh, like that here. These are huge structures uh, that may be 10 or 15 story high and may have 1,000 to 2,000 people living in them. And they used to be just regulated, oh, sorry, uh, just regulated by, um, I'm not sure if I can get up. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just leave it. Um, they used everything used to be done by the government, and now recently they've been trying to let people organize, and it is not easy to make that transition. And so uh, my colleagues are studying under what conditions can they get effective housing associations and move forward, and when have they failed? And some of them have failed, and some of them they uh, see the one of the problems is how do you get the elevators fixed? And uh, who does that? And how do you handle it? I mean, it's huge problems of organizing. These are like little communities in these huge buildings. So yes, that's the kind of work going on. And then there's a lot going out. We've had people doing comparative studies of water systems of various kinds. Huge variety in modern China right now. I was I don't know. Um, we have a new center that's going to start studying forests in China, but I can't tell you now. I don't have data. I had two questions, but first I was wondering, if we move that stool, could you sit on it and also talk into the mic? That other, the other stool over there? We could... Yeah. We can <laughs> I don't know. Let's just leave me where. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I'll keep them brief, and if you just want to answer one, that's fine. Um, but the, the first was mainly about the outcome side of things. You've looked at the conditions um, under which people come together and organize. Um, but on the outcome side, one of the critiques that we often hear is, okay, people trust each other, they feel good about the interactions, and the resources are being you know, significantly degraded. And you, in your work, you've used different outcomes over time, the robustness of institutions and different ways to think about that. And in your slide just now, you had some social outcomes, some ecological, and then an issue about the externalities overflowing into other systems. So I'm just wondering, um, your, your most current thinking about that now in terms of thinking about a real diversity of groups with very different goals yet some way of holding them all to a certain standard of environmental and social sustainability. How are you approaching that? Well, you have to try to figure out, uh, we're studying uh, five intentional communities in Indiana, and some of these were created in the 1960s as hippie groups. And they're not interested in managing the forest for productivity. Uh, uh, the forest is a matter of religious uh, and uh, inspirational and love of beauty. Um, and uh, so we are looking at forest condition and looking at it over time, but it's not changing very much because they're not doing much. Um, and there we have been studying much more uh, what are some of the problems they faced, et cetera, because the forest condition isn't changing. Um, but there are places where uh, people have those same goals and the forests are being deteriorated over time rather substantially. Um, and so we do look at a variety of outcome measures. Um, trying to get at both what they may be trying to achieve and then what are we interested in as, a, as ecologists that we want to see forests in sustainable ways. Um, in irrigation, uh, we have three measures that we have measured uh, in over 200 systems. And they, they, one of them is economic, um, um, you know, is it efficient economically? Another is, does water get to the tail end, which is a uh, problem of equity. Uh, and a uh, third is technical efficiency in terms of looking at the, um, uh, the way the applicant actually, like looking at it like an engineer rather than an economist. And um, not all systems are good on all three. But in general, what we were finding is that a small to medium-sized farmer-managed excel on all three across many, many systems, much more than the very big systems. Thank you. My last question was just about um, scholarship and social change. Um, and you've been doing this work um, long enough that I imagine that there could be groups that might have looked at your 1990 book and said, oh, these are what rules, the types of rules that work, so we're going to plan a system around that. We're going to pull people together and, you know, define the boundaries, have monitoring, and use your work as a checklist or a guideline. I was just wondering if that's happened and how it's turned yes, out. Yes, it and has, how it's and I don't you. like to see it as a, a blueprint, and some people are too rigid in the way. I look, I didn't, it wasn't looking at which new systems work best. It was looking at what systems survive for the longest. 
uh, time uh, within using their own uh, collective choice rules to sustain themselves. So it was a robustness sustainability question. But um, I, I have worked with people uh, who then, uh, my big thing is don't uh, make every, don't have a checklist that you got to do all of these instantly. But remember that if they don't have any conflict resolution mechanism, that it could happen that down the pike they get into a big conflict and then they're in trouble. And so that might not be something you start with, but as soon as the first conflict comes along, it's probably about the right time to start saying, okay, we better start thinking about that. Um, and um, uh, it, sometimes you can really work on the clarity of boundaries, uh, but sometimes you, you're just prevented from it. And you may still be able to get a system that works so long as you don't have a lot of strangers coming in. So it's not that, and I, I showed yesterday for Folks, uh, there's a new study of 96 studies of the design principles, and uh, the uh, overall finding is uh, this is others, not me, others who've, who've used it to look at whether systems that f have these variables are tend to be sustainable, and the uh, pr proportion of yes is very high. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.